Happy Resurrection Sunday. I want to welcome everybody here this morning, especially want to welcome uh, those of you who are visiting. Uh, we appreciate that you're here, and uh, I promise this, uh, this sermon won't last more than four hours. We'll get you out of here in time for lunch. Am I not on? How about now? How do you like it so far? I'm on here. Okay. Okay. Well, I can talk loud. My name is Mike. I'm uh, one of the elders here uh, at Grace Life. Again, welcome to all of you. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Let me uh, take care of the other problem that Caleb says I have. <laughs> if you were here on Friday, uh, you heard, you watched, and you heard a video uh, uh, spoken by S.M. Lockridge, who was a pastor for 40 years at Calvary Baptist Church in, in uh, San Diego. And in that video, Lockridge talked about the terrible things that happened to Christ on Good Friday. It was an awful time, but as Lockridge said, Sunday's a coming. Sunday's here. You know, we call it Good Friday because at the death of Jesus Christ, the judgment on the sins of those who believe in him was completed. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, there is no more judgment. Amen. It's Good Friday because those who believe are assured of all the promises that God made, both for life now and for eternity. And those are secured by the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. But for many, that Friday was not good. Jesus was mocked, he was beaten, he was flogged, he was crucified, and he died a horrible death. For the disciples, for Mary, for Mary of Magdala, for John Mark, for many others, including the two on the road to Emmaus, who thought that Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel. For all of those and all those who follow Jesus, Friday was not good. And on that Friday, some were sad, many were sad, but some were glad. The Pharisees thought they had finally gotten rid of this threat to their power that this Jesus was. The Romans were glad because they had finally quelled this problem, this thing that was causing all kinds of disturbances in Jerusalem, and they were finally glad that maybe that was over. And it was good for the enemy, Satan. But there was something that the Pharisees didn't know. There was something that the Romans didn't know. There was something that Satan didn't know. And what they did not know is the subject of our sermon today. It's all about the resurrection. We're going to talk about the resurrection anticipated. We're going to talk about what the resurrection proves, and we're going to talk about what the resurrection demands. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the reminder today that it was on a Sunday that you left the grave fully alive, having completed cleansing for sins, and that you offer that cleansing to every person who looks to you and to every person who believes. Thank you, Lord, for that. And 
We ask this morning that you just open our hearts again to your word and that you'd help us to see a little more about the resurrection and about what the resurrection means. In Jesus' name, amen. The resurrection anticipated. Now, uh, Satan didn't anticipate the resurrection. And you might wonder about that because, you know, Satan's not dumb. He's not omniscient, of course. He doesn't know everything. We know that he's not all-knowing, but you wonder if he couldn't have seen something about Jesus' willingness to die. In fact, Jesus outright stated that uh, several times that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would be killed, that he'd be crucified, and then he would rise on the third day. Yet Satan seemed to not catch that. And while smart, perhaps Satan was so excited at the prospect of killing the Son of God that he just didn't think beyond that. Perhaps Satan was just dumb, but whether he was smart or whether he was dumb, that the resurrection of the Messiah would happen was hidden from him and from others. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-9. through 9. Yet among the mature we do import, impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul's talking about the wisdom of God and about a particular quality of the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God is hidden from the rulers of this age. And more than that, the wisdom of God is reserved for those who love him. If you believe in Jesus Christ today, God's wisdom is yours. You have it. You have access to it. Yet the resurrection was hidden from the rulers of this age. Now that phrase could certainly refer to the earthly leaders. It could have referred to Caiaphas, the leader of the Jewish council. could have referred to Pilate, the governor of Judea for Rome. But the phrase, as Paul uses it, is an idiom to describe spiritual beings, spiritual beings in the heavenly realm, specifically those who oppose God, that the resurrection would take place was hidden from them. Otherwise, as Paul said, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. The resurrection was hidden from the rulers and authorities, but it was anticipated. It's anticipated throughout the Old Testament, but I want to look at two passages in particular. The first is in Genesis, and it comes at the time when God had asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son. Genesis 22, 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in you, or in your offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, when you first glance at this passage, you may not think of the resurrection of Christ, and really can only see how it applies after the resurrection of Christ. But we can see that this is not the only time that a father was willing to sacrifice his son, his only son and in anticipation that sacrifice referring of course now to Christ would come a resurrection 
And the offspring that's message, uh, mentioned in that passage, of course, is Jesus. And it would be Jesus that would fulfill the promise that was made to Abraham, and, and by whom shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The anticipation of the resurrection in that passage, though, is made even more clear in Hebrews eleven nineteen. We're going through Hebrews on Sunday mornings, and we'll resume Hebrews next week. But in Hebrews eleven nineteen, speaking of Abraham, the author says that he, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. So there was anticipation of the resurrection. The near sacrifice of Abraham's son, his only son, prefigured the real sacrifice by God the Father of his son, his only son. A clearer anticipation of the resurrection is found in Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, 7 through 12, this is part of what's called the servant song. There's three or four servant songs in Isaiah, and they're all about God's servant, what we would know as the Messiah. Verses 7 through 12, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to, like, to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. A few things in this passage we need to understand. First of all, the Messiah, the servant, was cut off. Cut off is the phrase used in the scriptures very often to mean killed. Also, the servant was sacrificed by oppression and judgment, unfairly, but he did it for the transgression of his people, of God's people. In verse 11, it says that when his soul, that is the soul of the servant, makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, suggesting that the servant who was killed would see life again. And then, to emphasize the point, in verse 12, it says of the servant that, he, that God shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. A dead person can't make intercession for anyone. Isaiah, of course, is speaking about the Messiah, about Jesus. And as incredible as it may have seemed to his original readers, the Messiah would die for our sins. He would live again. And to, among other things, intercede for those transgressors, the ones that he died for. So what does the resurrection prove? Now, in 1 Peter, Peter says this. He says that we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and to do so in gentleness and respect. This admonition has led Christians over the centuries to uh, study what has become to be called apologetics. 
Now, apologetics is not the study of how to apologize to someone, although some of us probably need that. Uh, me, not the, uh, the least. But this apologetics is the study and the systemization of the reasons to believe. For example, we know the, that uh, we, can, we can be certain of the historicity of Jesus, that Jesus was a real person, that he walked on the earth in Judea, in Galilee, that he said the things that he said and he did the things that he did. We can be certain of that because of this discipline of apologetics. We can have confidence that the scripture that was written by Moses and David and the prophets and the apostles and others is the scripture we have. We can be certain of that. And we can be certain because of apologetics that we know that miracles happen, that God does intervene in the, in the affairs of this planet and that he intervenes in the life, the lives of men and women. And we can be confident to know that the resurrection really happened. When it happened and where it happened, where the scriptures say it happened. Not to get into apologetics this morning, but one reason we know that is because both the cross and the tomb are empty. But our interest today is not to prove the resurrection. Our interest today is to look at some of the things that the resurrection proves. The first thing the resurrection proves are that the scriptures are true. On the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Christ uh, rose from the dead, Peter famously preached what could be called the first Christian sermon. And in that sermon, Peter wanted to convince his hearers, who were mostly Jews, of the resurrection of Christ. Now, the people listening, mostly Jews, knew the Old Testament. They knew it very well because they had been, they had been, they had grown up hearing about it and listening and being taught about the Old Testament scriptures. So Peter took advantage of that knowledge in Acts 2, 22 through 32. Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not, it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will make me full with gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter says, I may say to you with confidence that about the patriarch David, that he both died and that he is buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, that this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter quoted Psalm 16, 8 through 11 there. Another passage that anticipated the resurrection. And all of a sudden... Many people who were listening to Peter realized that David was talking about the Messiah, that David was talking about Jesus, and 3,000 of them that day came to faith in Christ. About 50 days before that, there were two. We mentioned them earlier. They were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus on that Sunday. 
they were disciples of Jesus, and they were upset because they saw Jesus crucified. And it was the third day since that happened. A stranger came along, started walking with them, and the stranger asked them why they were upset, and they were a little surprised at that. Hard to believe that nobody that, that the stranger had not heard about everything that had happened in the past few days. But they explained the events of the weekend. And then the stranger, of course, who we knew to be Jesus, said this. Luke 24, 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Of course, the scriptures that they were talking about were the Old Testament scriptures. The point is, is that the Old Testament spoke not only of Jesus and his resurrection, but everything that the Messiah that must happen to the Messiah. The resurrection of Christ confirms the truthfulness and the validity of the Old Testament scriptures. And not to be outdone, the New Testament scriptures are full of the testimony of the resurrection of Christ. Even in the greeting of a letter. In Galatians 1.1, Paul wrote this to the Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from them, not from men, nor through man, but, Je- but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. The resurrection proves that the scriptures are true. The resurrection also proves our resurrection. Paul traveled a lot, as you know, and in Acts 17, we find Paul uh, arriving in Athens. And we see that Paul was distressed by the, the, the numerous idols that were around the city. And he eventually began to speak to Jews and to Gentiles. And among the people who listened to him were some philosophers in Greece, and some of those philosophers mocked him, mocked him talking about, what is this resurrection from the dead? Others were interested. So Paul got invited to share at uh, what we might call an ancient debating society called the Areopagus. <clears throat> and here's what Paul said, Acts 17, 22 through 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all uh, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward, and, toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus, of course. Paul is calling people to repent believe in Christ. The time was short because God is going to judge people in righteousness. 
And Paul said that we could be assured of this, certain of this, because God has appointed this man, Jesus, whom he has raised from the dead. The point Paul is making is that God will judge, and we know that God's going to judge because Christ was raised. Some scoffed at Paul, others were interested and wanted to hear more, and a few believed. But this leads us to what Jesus said about the resurrection. By the way, if Jesus is going to judge, we're going to have to be resurrected. In the Gospel of John, there came a time, one of many, where Jesus made the religious leaders upset by what he taught and by what he did. What was the trigger this time was that Jesus had healed a paralytic by the pool of Bethsaida. I don't think I said that right. John says the leaders began to persecute Jesus because he was calling God his Father, making him equal with God. And this is how, in part, how Jesus responded. John five twenty four through 29. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All people will be resurrected. Paul said, or as Jesus said, some will be resurrected to judgment, others will be resurrected to life. And those, because they heard the word of Christ, they believed in him. You know, a week ago Friday, we uh, had the funeral of Louis Lee, a good member of this church. And, you know, funerals are for grieving, as they should be. You mourn the loss of someone you love. But this funeral was full of joy. Part, it was full of joy because of who Louis was. How he touched people and mentored them and made their lives better. But it was also full of joy. Because most of the folks there knew that Louis wasn't dead. That he had been in fact resurrected and that he was in fact with God. This is how Paul describes your resurrection, a mystery now told. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 55. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Every single person in this room is going to be resurrected. The resurrection of Jesus proves it. And everybody in this room will be resurrected whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ. The third thing the resurrection proves is the lordship of Jesus Christ. We've been studying Hebrews, as I mentioned. In Hebrews, the, the purpose of the author of Hebrews is to 
demonstrate the superiority of Jesus Christ. And he begins his letter by making that point. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. For the author of Hebrews, Jesus' appointment to power was a result of his accomplishing cleansing for sins. By cleansing sins, Jesus took the place of authority. Paul makes the same point, but emphasizes not the cleansing of sins, but rather the resurrection, which had to happen for the cleansing of sins to be effective. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That phrase, son of God in power, is four words in Greek. I'm going to teach you some Greek this morning. Eos, theos, and dynamis. Eos, theos, and dynamis. I'll go out and press your friends and relatives with that. But those words, those four words, are almost meant to be read as if they're one word. And meant to be read... To emphasize it, Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power. Paul's not saying here that Christ is Lord because of the resurrection, but that the resurrection proves Christ's lordship. The power of the resurrection has benefits. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, 15 through 21. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus... And your love toward all the saints who do not cease to give thanks for you, but remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. These blessings that Paul prayed for the Ephesians are available to any believer. In fact, believers can pray those, that prayer for other believers. But these blessings are supplied by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That resurrection power. The resurrection proves that Jesus is Lord. What does the resurrection demand? Well, you know, Jesus said some things. He said a lot of things. Um, And a lot of things he said were were easily able to accept. Because they're good things. He said some really good things. For example... He said, uh, what was it? Oh, he said, be kind, rewind. No. That was Blockbuster. Sad thing about that is that there are people in this room who have no idea what I'm talking about. Rewind what? Okay, Jesus didn't say that. But he did say that we should love one another. He said that we should forgive one another. He said that the one who has not sinned can throw the first stone. Those are good things. Jesus said some good stuff. 
But he also said some things that are, well, if you're going to put a name on it, are just crazy. Jesus said he can forgive sins. Really, Jesus? Jesus said he's the son of God. (laughs) Okay, Jesus, now we're getting a little bit off the deep end here. Jesus said, as we've already mentioned, that he would be crucified and that he'd be resurrected on the third day. Okay, Jesus, it's now time to go to the loony bin. Think of it this way. What would you think if you left after services this morning, you walked out here and you went down the sidewalk because you had to go to the dollar store to get some candy for your Easter egg hunt? <clears throat> and as you're walking down, you see this well-dressed fellow, good-looking guy, nice guy, big smile on his face, and he's talking to people as, as he's walking, and he's saying things like you should love one another and you should forgive one another, and you hear this and you go, well, you know, that's really good. This guy sounds like a real good guy. And, you, and then finally you come up to him and he, he looks at you in the eye and he says, tomorrow I'm going to go down to the Avon Circle and I'm going to be killed and I'm going to be raised, raised on the third day. What would you think of him? Yes, you would. But Jesus said that, and then he did it. So the resurrection demands something from us. It demands a choice. C.S. Lewis put the choice in this way. Lewis said, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. Lewis says, that's one thing we must not say. Lewis goes on, he says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The choice demanded by the resurrection is what are you going to believe about Jesus? If you have believed that Jesus lived a perfect life, if that he paid the penalty for your sin on the cross, and that he was resurrected and that he ascended to heaven and now is at the right hand of God interceding for you, for those who believe, then you have eternal life. You are eternally in God's family. As Louis Lee put it, you carry God with you. The resurrection of Christ makes that possible. And there are other choices for those who believe. One is expressed by Jesus himself in John twenty nineteen through 21. On the evening of that day, of the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, another choice we need to make is to share Jesus Christ with others. Christ came to us. And he has sent us to tell others. It's not by way of obligation. Our sins are covered. Our sins have been judged. If we believe in Christ, we are entirely with God, entirely with his family. So this is not a matter of obligation. It's a matter of gratitude. 
Jesus. Somebody told me about Jesus. I need to tell others. By the way, the best way to tell others about Jesus is just to tell them what Jesus' resurrection has done for you. If you do not believe Jesus was resurrected, you are dead in your sins, according to the Scriptures, and your name is not written in the book of life. You have a choice to make. And remember, to not choose is to make a choice. The Apostle John, in his first letter, says it this way, 1 John 5, 11, and 12, and this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. As we move toward communion here, I want to remind you that if there's a choice that you need to make today, that there will be people up here at the front of the stage, our prayer team, who will be thrilled to talk to you and to pray with you about whatever choice you need to make. So if you have a choice, please come. It'll be at the end of the service, after the music. But as we come here to communion, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, when he first, when he had the Last Supper with the disciples, he said things like, uh, when he passed the bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he said, when he passed the juice, he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Communion is a time to remember what Christ did. But there's something else communion is. Jesus said at that last supper, he said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We observe communion here to remember what Christ did, but we also observe communion here to look forward to what's going to happen, to look forward to that great feast that everyone who believes in Christ will be sit around these fantastic tables. I don't know what they'll be made out of, but they'll be fantastic tables. And we'll have a feast with Christ, and we will share. He will share with us the fruit of the vine again. So the uh, band is going to come up. They're going to uh, play for us as we take communion. If you're a believer in Christ, you're free to take communion. There's a table here. There's a table in the back. Uh, if you uh, need a gluten-free option for the bread, there's a, uh, uh, gluten-free wafers there. Uh, as the music plays, just encourage you to come. If you don't know, believe, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, or even if you're not sure, uh, don't feel like you have to come. Don't feel like you're obligated to do this. And, and in fact, if you're not a believer, you, you really shouldn't. But feel free to stay in your seat if that's the case. But I would encourage you, if you're not a believer in Christ, right now would be a great time to believe. And then you can take communion. So as Nate and the band plays, come. Come.